Greetings, everyone. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks for tuning in. On today's pod, we have a new origin story, a great company with a long history of adaptability, especially when you hear how its founder missed out on securing the patent of one of the most important technologies in human history that he very well may have invented. So stay tuned for that. Also, we're going to learn a little about St. Patrick's Day, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks. For those of you who listened to our pod last month on Valentine's Day, you may be pleased to hear that we have our saints expert back. Lisa Battelle is going to enlighten us on who this Patrick fellow was, if you're not already familiar with his resume. And we have a new mystery product. This product was patented back on March 7th, 1876. And the three clues I'll give you are that one, it's still in use today. And two, this product is now morphing into other products and vice versa. And three, some people are addicted to it, uh, which may have given you a little bit too much of a reveal there on the mystery product. But first, let's jump back a little further in time, as in over 1,500 years ago, to learn a little about St. Patrick. And to that, we have my conversation with Lisa Patel. Lisa is a professor of history and religion at the University of Southern California. She is the author of several books, including Women in Early Medieval Europe, 400 to 1100, and Landscape with Two Saints, How Genevieve of Paris and Bridget of Kedar Built Christianity in Barbarian Europe. And applicable to the topic at hand, Lisa is the author of the article, 10 Things to Know About the Real St. Patrick. Hi, Lisa. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Deal quit, as they say in Ireland. Hello. Uh, Yes, thank you. Thank you. And happy early St. Patrick's Day. Thanks. And uh, I guess let's start with who was St. Patrick? Well, here's the problem. He wasn't Irish. He came from Britain. Um, We're not sure where, but probably somewhere up north near Carlisle, which is close to the Scottish border. So he was, uh, um, he was kidnapped when he was 16. We know all this because he wrote about it. Uh, he lived close enough to the coast that uh, Irish pirates were regular visitors. And he was kidnapped and taken to Ireland and sold into slavery for six or seven years um, in Mayo, where he tended the sheep. And he had a sort of conversion experience. So when he escaped later on, he decided to come back to Ireland and convert uh, the so-called heathens to Christianity. So what you're saying is St. Patrick is really Ireland's first, one of Ireland's first finest imports? Ah, exactly, yes. Although, you know, they had earlier imports too, things like, you know, marble from the north of Britain and like redware from Gaul. But uh, yeah, he, was, he became a very famous import indeed. Yeah. And what are some of the myths about St. Patrick that were created? Well, first of all, I don't know if you shared this, so apologies if you did, but when, when, when did St. Patrick live? Ah, well, another thing we don't know for sure, but um, we're pretty sure that he wrote his confessio. It's a, a long letter about his career um, in the 5th century, towards, towards the end of the 400s. So he wasn't exactly the first guy to come and bring Christian ideas and things to Ireland. Books, that was a big one. But um, there were other missionaries. But he was certainly the most famous over time because he left documents and because his cult got picked up by the the most powerful kings in Ireland. So that was a a fruitful partnership. Got it. So he was uh he was an import who got syndicated in some in some respect. <laughs> so yes, what, yes. what so what were some of the myths that then um sort of uh began about St. Patrick in the ensuing century? Well, well, there are great early medieval myths that no one knows about because, you know, because he was such an important saint and he had so many churches that were affiliated with his cult, they wrote tons and tons of stuff about him. So I was just reading, uh, yeah, this is for fun, um, a 7th century life of St. Patrick. And uh, when he arrives in Ireland to Christianize people, he has this full-out battle with Druids where they do counter-miracle making and he causes a Druid to fly in the air and then drop and bash his brains out. So those were the sorts of legends they were spreading in the, the 7th century. You know, more recently there was that thing with snakes. 
And what was that? Well, you know that he uh, he drove all the snakes out of Ireland. It comes from a, a story about him in the like ninth or tenth century. But the thing is, there there were no snakes in Ireland. They didn't make it over the land bridge. Right, right. So so there was uh, so there was the seventh century biopic, and then uh, yeah. they, they kind of <laughs> it didn't make a great the, film. And then they tried to turn it into an action adventure, like uh, yes. Um, uh, St. Patrick's meets Indiana Jones. Got it. And there, there are some pretty interesting products that come out of that legend. Um, there's a holy card with Patrick pointing in a very bad mood to some snakes. You know, and you see it everywhere. You go online, you'll find that image right away. Uh, so there's a business in holy cards with that. Oh, that's funny. Now, so what are kind of the earliest references of St. Patrick's Day? When did it become a, a holiday? Oh, as soon as he died. I mean, with saints, the day of their deaths is a, a feast day in the church. So every year on that day, you know, they read stories about the saint, and they have special prayers to the saint and so forth. And I don't know, maybe if it's a really popular, famous saint, they go home and celebrate. Um, but, you know, Patrick was taken off the, the general um, worldwide saints calendar after Vatican II. So now it's uh, up to people whether or not they want to celebrate his feast day. But uh, so March 17th, this is supposedly the day he died. Um, and they've been uh, celebrating it ever since the fifth century. Hmm. And how, how has the holiday evolved over the last uh, <laughs> 1,400 years or so? Yeah, you know, I mean, Ireland went through some, some difficult times, um, especially in the 16th, 17th century when the Catholic Church got quashed. So um, there was really an explosion with the Irish diaspora. Wherever Irish people went, you know, uh, before and after the hunger, they, they brought traditions about St. Patrick with them. So I'm pretty sure it's they who are to blame for green beer. Um, and in fact, I think they're to blame the diaspora Irish for parades as well, because they had these sort of Irish associations, uh, civic associations in big American cities, you know, um, and they would all have parades on Patrick's Day. And so, and so they do parades in Dublin now as well, and other Irish towns. Sure. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but I read that actually the tradition of corned beef and potatoes is actually <laughs> an American tradition uh, that I've never celebrated uh, St. Patrick's Day in, in Ireland, but I assume it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's celebrated with that as well. But that, my understanding was that was an American tradition that was perpetuated by, uh, obviously, um, after the Irish potato famine, um, uh, mm -hmm. Irish immigrants were um, essentially living alongside uh, Jewish immigrants and the corn beef <laughs> like contribution that. from the Jewish butchers <laughs> that made its way into the St. Patrick's holiday. Have you heard this? <laughs> no, I haven't heard the Jewish angle, but I'm, I'm really unhappy that they didn't get, like, you know, pastrami instead. Um, well, that's an interesting but, point. <laughs> Similar, I guess. Um, no, yeah, I mean that, you know, this great 19th century creation of the holiday um, produced all sorts of customs that are uh, thought to be, you know, older and are not like the whole um, four-leaf clover thing or uh, leprechauns, you know. Right. I mean, yeah. there, there were about? little spirits that were in the medieval literature called leprechaun, but it, it wasn't the little fella with the silly green hat or anything like that. Yeah, and do you have any idea how that came about? No, I think that's just got to be part of the great folklore wave of the early modern period, you know, when we get fairy tales and, and Grimm Brothers and all that sort of stuff, um, uh, sort of folklorization of what earlier had been, you know, some sort of religious custom or whatever. Yeah, and what about the shamrocks? Yeah, well, I don't know if you know your plant science, but apparently four-leaf clovers are very rare. Um, and I don't know where that came from. I read somewhere that they, they wore clover on St. Patrick's Day in the 18th century, uh, essentially to cleanse their breath after drinking too much. But I don't know if that's true. Oh, interesting. Well, it may not be true, but it sounds like a good idea. So Give it a shot. And and, and St. Patrick's Day is celebrated around the world um, at this point. How, do you have any sense of how it's celebrated in Ireland, you know, how, it, how it's different in, in other countries yeah. here in the U.S.? And in you Ireland? know, I, 
I mean, I haven't I haven't celebrated it anywhere but uh, Britain, Ireland, and various towns in the states. And um, when I first celebrated it in Ireland, I was a very young person. It was decades ago, and um, all we did was a pub crawl all day, and then go back to someone's house and eat a turkey. Um, and there was just a tiny little parade down Dublin's main streets, but. Um, uh, with the uh, New York Policemen's Wives Association leading the way. But um, today it's a massive thing in Ireland. Um, and they have the big, you know, like Machnus puppets and all sorts of dancing routines. It's almost like, you know, Macy's Thanksgiving. Um, so, and they really publicize it, too, as a family event. St. Patrick's It's not all about getting trashed, you know, and so forth. So St. Patrick's Day has actually gotten bigger and global commercial and in but even within Ireland itself it sounds like it's gotten bigger over yeah. the last 25 years or so well i mean what a splendid attraction for tourists and they spread it out over a whole week i mean it's just yeah it's a money maker yeah you mentioned uh, macy's here in the states with thanksgiving are there any companies or brands that are associated with st patrick's day in ireland uh that you know i i had a look because sponsorships of festivals and things like that yeah i'm very i'm um well guinness always has special ads and so forth um and i was trying to think i was trying to look is there such a thing as the st patrick's brand or a patrick's something or other associated with the saint and the holiday and i couldn't come up with anything um and i think it's because he is well he's the patron saint of ireland um yeah. and i don't know if the u.s has a single patron saint that satisfies our diverse religious needs but uh i was saying it would be like making a brand of something silly and calling it mlk something ml martin luther king burgers or something or right. you know or gandhi yeah. you know right uh, gandhi, gandhi soda pop. Would pie. that would not be a good look for gandhi yeah gandhi i mean burgers. he's still very much a religious figure and people go to pilgrimage at spots where he wandered around and built a church and you know they have, they have massive masses on it praying to him and so forth so maybe gandhi veggie burgers no that's about it <laughs> that could work um so uh from from your own experience what is what is one of your favorite memories from a saint patrick's day uh well that first one i mentioned where we did the pub crawl i can't remember much um <laughs> uh but you know i i, I play it kind of low-key on saint patrick's day for me he's the subject of, you know, way too much reading of academic articles and books and stuff it isn't very much fun for me. Um, and, and what I like best when I think about him is his utter crankiness in almost every story about him. You really? know, he's always beating up druids or he's always demanding. He went on a hunger fast against God in one legend. Um, and uh, he, you know, he he cannot stand pagans. He's always doing terrible things to them. So that's sort of the fun bit. And even in his own writings from the fifth century, he complains nonstop. Really? A little bit of a curmudgeon, mm -hmm. St. Patrick? Well, maybe. I mean, he had reason to complain. I mean, he, you know, he had been a slave, and then he was all by himself, he thought, in Ireland, trudging around trying to baptize people, uh, you know, and he got beat up, and kings made him pay to come into their, their halls and stuff like that, and British bishops were mad at him because they weren't sure he was a real bishop at all. So, you know, he had sort of a tough life, but he stuck it out, and I guess that's why he gets to be the saint. Yeah. If you could cast uh, anyone as St. Patrick in uh, a movie, who might who might you cast? Oh my God! And you know it's been done. There are some really terrible sure. movies about St. Patrick, where everybody wears like a bowl haircut. Um, <laughs> you know, geez, that's a hard one. I have to find some, you know, Shakespearean who was bad tempered. I suppose. What about you? Uh, I mean, as you were describing it, the first name that came to mind was Mel Gibson, but that feels so pretty. <laughs> well, he is very Catholic. Um, he probably doesn't like St. Patrick, though. Uh, no, someone like that, Jonathan Price, you know? Yeah, there you go. There you go. I like it. Uh, so what are you planning on doing this uh, this St. Patrick's Day? Uh, I'm going to be wandering around merry old England and possibly visiting Shakespeare's birthplace. Oh, very nice. Well, enjoy, and then you can uh, find some more stories for us uh, to come back and share with us on, on a future podcast. That would be lovely. Don't forget to wear yeah. green. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining us as always, uh, Lisa. Saint pa uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, and uh, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Slon lot. See you later. 
Thanks to Lisa for joining us again. Always great to have her on. And pursuant to our discussion, up until the 1970s, it was actually illegal in Ireland for pubs to be open on March 17th. But increasingly, as Lisa mentioned, the holiday has been commercialized. In 1995, the Irish government began a national campaign to use St. Patrick's Day to drive tourism and showcase Ireland and Irish culture to the rest of the world. And today, about a million people annually take part in Ireland's uh, St. Patrick's Festival in Dublin, which is a multi-day celebration featuring parades, concerts, outdoor theater productions, and fireworks. And here in the States, the biggest St. Patrick's Day celebration is in New York, New York City, of course. The St. Patrick's Day Parade is considered the world's oldest civilian parade. It cites its history beginning all the way back in 1762. And it's the largest parade in the United States with over 150,000 participants. In 2002, after 9-11, the parade had over 300,000 participants, and it is said it was the only time you could hear a pin drop on Fifth Avenue when there was a two-minute moment of silence to honor the victims. I remember many years ago having a meeting in Manhattan on St. Patrick's Day, and getting around Midtown was brutal. Uh, So I prefer not to be in New York uh, on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Far prefer being in Chicago uh, in our office in the Wrigley Building uh, next to where they dye uh, the Chicago River green. Changing gears, I want to pivot to our origin story. But first, we're going to go back to our mystery product of the day because there's actually a connection between the product and this uh, 150-year-old company that we are about to talk about. So as you may have guessed, uh, the product patented back on March 7th, 1876, that is still in use today, has morphed into other products, and is uh, now a product that people are addicted to, is the telephone. On March 7th, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell received the patent for the telephone, and three days later, the first call was made with the infamous line, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. And this is one of those stories of American lore. We all know about Alexander Graham Bell on the phone, but the lines are now blurred between what a phone is versus other products. Your phone, your tablet, your TV, your watch, and your computer are all basically becoming the same, but in different shapes. Um, I guess your home phone is still one-dimensional, but I don't even know if anyone has a home phone anymore. But going back to 1876, there's three things that I find ironic that don't get enough attention. The first is the irony that the first telephone call ever made was a boss calling his assistant and saying, come here, I want to see you. I'm not sure if we've kind of laughed at the irony of that enough. I mean, Alexander Graham Bell. And why do we always call him by all three names? Why can't we just call him Bell or Alex Bell or AGB? I don't think we've laughed enough and perhaps given enough sympathy to Mr. Watson that the first call in human history was a guy being summoned by his boss. And it's funny to think that the first call, that request, please come here, I want to see you, is a phone call that has probably been replicated with the exact same words by bosses to employees around the world literally billions of times since 1876. And even more ironic is that Watson may have been the last person who was actually happy to have received that call and happily fulfilled the request. The second irony, and this just came up today with my friend Lucas, who is our sound engineer for the pod, who mentioned it is that the phone also popularized the greeting hello and eventually its shorthand informal version, hi. As Lucas pointed out, Mr. Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons always answers the phone, ahoy ahoy, as a gag on how ancient he is. But it turns out that AGB's preferred way of answering the phone was in fact ahoy ahoy. And indeed, in the early years of the phone, there was public discourse about telephone behavior and etiquette as you might imagine with this new technology. For instance, in 1878, the District Telephone Company of New Haven, Connecticut, which is considered to be the first phone book with its 50 subscribers, advised users to begin calls with a, quote, firm and cheery, hello, hello, but spelled H-U-L-L-O-A. And the phone book also recommended to end a phone call with, quote, that is all. So Alexander Graham Bell's preferred ahoy ahoy eventually lost market share to hello, and dictionaries have given credit to Thomas Edison for popularizing hello as the greeting, which was his preferred way of beginning a call. 
Hello, incidentally, was still a relatively young word back in the 1870s, having only appeared in the Oxford English Dictionary for the first time back in 1827. And back then, hello was used more like how we might use hey, as in, hello, what the hell are you doing? Or, hello, what do we have here? The third irony, and I didn't even know about this until relatively recently, is that AGB may have not have been the real inventor of the telephone. Uh, And no, it wasn't Watson. It was this other guy named Elijah Gray. You may have heard about this because this story has become more mainstream over the last few years, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Alexander Graham Bell may have either stolen some IP and or minimally greased the wheels with a bureaucrat to beat Gray to the race for a patent. Look it up. And that's a great segue to our origin story about the company Graybar, Founded in 1869, Graybar is a Fortune 500 company based in St. Louis. To learn more about Graybar, I talked with our friend Carrie Johnson. Carrie is Graybar's Director of Strategic Communications. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Jason. I'm excited to be here today. Well, first of all, happy 151-year-old uh, birthday. Uh, so uh, you made it through your 150th, and uh, so happy 151. Well, thank you. So, and you, you sound great. You don't sound like you're 151. So, uh, well, so uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I, I, I assume well. you haven't updated your LinkedIn picture in a while because you still <laughs> you look great. You look way younger than 150, 151. Um, thank you. I appreciate so, that. <laughs> so, um, first, um, sh- sh- share for our listeners a little bit about Graybar. Um, Graybar is a Fortune 500 company. Uh, I think earlier this year it was on Fortune's most admired company list for something like the 18th time. Um, obviously, the company uh, has has persevered and adapted uh, to have a 150-year uh, history, um, but it may be a relatively unknown uh, name uh, to many uh, listeners if they are not uh, in your industry. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, who Graybar is. Sure. Um, in, in the most simple terms, Graybar distributes the products and we provide the services that our customers need to build, to maintain, and to renovate their facilities. So that can be anything from a simple project, project like renovating your neighborhood school or updating the lighting there, um, all the way up to something as big as building a, a state-of-the-art NFL stadium. So, um, so we serve a wide range of customers um, working behind the scenes really to help them get each job done on time and on budget. So um, we're a distributor, which means that we're a B2B company. Um, most yep. of Graybar's customers are in the construction industry, and we also have a lot of customers in, um, that serve commercial and institutional and government organizations, as well as industrial and utility customers. So um, kind of a broad mix of um, customers and a broad mix of products that projects that we support. Um, a little bit about the company, we have um, 289 locations across the United States, Canada, and Puerto Rico, and nearly 9,000 employees, and our corporate headquarters is in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, one interesting fact, and I think we'll get into this later, is that Graybar is 100% owned by our active and retired employees, and we have been for more than 90 years. Yeah. What, 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 from your, your perspective, have been some of the kind of ingredients of the, the secret sauce that have made the company so successful um, and uh, presumably, you know, ha- have a terrific corporate culture, which uh, I know is one of the key drivers of, of being recognized as obviously one of the world's most admired companies. Uh, but what, from your perspective, are some of those the secret ingredients of the Graybar sauce? Sure. So, you know, being recognized on the Fortune World's Most Admired Companies list is is a great honor. Um, And if you look at the details that that are underneath being on that list, um, they rank companies based on factors that contribute to their overall reputation. Um, Things like innovation, social responsibility, quality products and services, financial soundness, and people management. Um, Kind of the basics of of really running a, a strong company. 
And when we look at those factors, you know, I believe that Graybar has earned a spot on this list for 18 years because these factors really represent who we are and who we've been from the very beginning. And when you look at our past, it's clear that our leaders have consistently focused on doing what's right for our company and for all the people we served. And that leads to, to this reputation um, that is recognized in lists like the Fortune Most Admired. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, Graybar is one of the largest employee-owned companies in North America, and that shapes our culture in a really distinctive way. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it creates a, a culture where um, our employees really set high standards for service and excellence and integrity because this is our company. And our people take great pride in delivering that exceptional customer experience every day. Um, and, you know, and because it's our company, we don't rest on our accomplishments. We keep working to make our company stronger and to serve our customers better and better year after year. Yeah. Most companies that have been around for 150 years uh, haven't done uh, the same thing or, do, or done the same thing, certainly the exact same way that they did. Um, what, what's Graybar's origin story? How did the company uh, begin back in 1869? So it's a little complicated. Um, so <laughs> with me. It's always complicated. <laughs> it's, all, it's complicated, Jason, but... Um, <laughs> But hang in there with me. I'll try to explain it um, going back to the beginning. So our story starts in Cleveland in 1868. Um, we, we didn't exist then, but Western Union had a manufacturing shop in Cleveland, um, and they, sold, they closed it and sold it to the superintendent of the shop, a man named George Schock. Um, he found a business partner in a young, ambitious man named Enos Barton. Um, Barton and Schock opened for business in January of 1869. It's a small manufacturing firm of, of telegraph equipment. Mm. So Schock quickly grew tired of the business, and just a few months into their new venture, he sold his part of the business to Elisha Gray. Now, Gray was the, firm, the firm's best customer at the time, and he was a professor at Oberlin College and and. Uh, prolific inventor. In fact, Gray, um, th during his life, is credited with more than 70 patents. So um, Gray bought into the business, and in the fall of 1869, the company was formally established under the name Gray and Barton. Um, they manufactured a variety of telegraph equipment, alarms, and signaling products. Um, and then soon thereafter, that same year, um, General Anson Stagger, who is an executive with the Western Union Telegraph Company, um, saw the great work they were doing and offered to become a business partner if they would move the company from Cleveland to Chicago. So they welcomed that investment, and in December of 1869, Gray and Barton opened its doors in Chicago. So that gets us through the first year. Um, Steger was a, a really influential force in the business early on because of his involvement with Western Union. And uh, with his influence, Western Union became Gray and Barton's biggest customer. And eventually, Western Union purchased an interest in the company, and the name of the company was changed to Western Electric Manufacturing Company in 1872, still based in Chicago. So keep in mind that all of this was happening during an era of invention and innovation. And if you think about it, you know, the invention of the telephone, it was patented yeah. in 1876. The incandescent yep. lamp in 1879, that opened up a whole new world of opportunities for this company. And yep. um, Western Electric became one of the world's largest manufacturers of telephone equipment and electrical products in its day. And so if you think about it as as electricity and telephony continued to spread across the United States, Western Electric saw an opportunity to distribute products, not just their own products, but products manufactured by other companies. So they set up this part of the company called the supply department, where they could um, basically create a one-stop shop for anything electrical that their customers needed. 
And so the supply department um, became very successful, and it was spun off as a separate entity named Graybar Electric Company, Inc. in 1925. And the name Graybar um, was chosen in honor of the two co-founders, Elisha Gray and Enos Barton. So gotcha. that's where Graybar actually started was in 1925 as um, a spinoff of Western Electric. Mm. Now there is one little caveat at the end here. Western Electric tried extremely hard to find a buyer that would maintain all of the benefits that the Graybar employees enjoyed as part of Western Electric, but they couldn't find a buyer. Um, so the employees offered to purchase the company. And so in 1929, um, Graybar employees purchased the company, and Graybar became the largest employee-owned company in the nation. And as I mentioned earlier, it remains 100% owned by our employees today. Wow. Now, I don't know if, if you know the, the answer to this question, but um, uh, but whenever, of course, uh, from a historical perspective, you hear the year 1929, that immediately sends off alarm bells. So were there any implications to uh, the employees buying the company uh, right around the time of the uh, beginning of the Great Depression? It was um, not the best time to buy a company, but... Um it was a very hard time, and, and um, we have a lot of documentation on that era. I think the key thing there is that the company faced a lot of hardship during the Great Depression, but um, Western Electric was committed to, to helping this company succeed, and um, yeah. they, they certainly helped the company through. Um, but one of the things you actually see during that window of time is that Graybar did invest in growth even during the Great Depression. And yeah. um, while it was very, very hard for, um, for the company and they had to make some hard decisions, um, they were optimistic and they continued to invest in growth. And um, in my opinion, that's a, a key reason why we're still here today. Yeah, no, and that's a great, great point. Um, I remember learning that kind of best practice, even when our small company went through uh, the Great Recession. Um, our CEO and founder uh, always talked about that. He said the great companies always invest during uh, downturns and, and recessions, and so um, that is a, a time-tested um, best practice, uh, I think, of, of business. Um, now, I know you, I, I, I also heard that you have a special affinity uh, for Mr. Albert Salt. So tell, tell us a little bit about Mr. Salt. So Albert Salt is, is one of my favorite characters in the Graybar story. Albert Salt was the first president of Graybar. Um, when Graybar was spun off by Western Electric in 1925. They named Albert Salt president. He was a long-term Western Electric employee who started with the company at the age of 14 in a very entry-level spot. He had an eighth-grade education and worked his way up to the position of vice president of purchasing at Western Electric before becoming Graybar's first president at age 61. But Salt realized when this company was launched, he realized that he had a big challenge in gaining visibility for this new company. Um, and it's great to see how he was just a one-man publicity machine. Um, he took every opportunity to give speeches, to do interviews about Graybar. Um, he, under his leadership, the company spent more than a million dollars during its first year on print advertising, which is a wow. lot today and certainly was a lot at the time. Um, yeah. One of my favorite stories about Salt is how he managed to turn a branding mistake into a, a publicity opportunity. So when the Graybar um, company was launched and created its first logo, they created the shape of a shield with a bar going from the upper right to the lower left in the center. And they launched the new company with this logo. And as it turns out, a bar going in that direction was called a bar sinister, which denoted illegitimacy. And so at Salt's oh suggestion, they changed the bar, the bar to go in the opposite direction, and that <sighs> denoted dexterity. And so he had this attitude that any publicity was good publicity, so he even used the mistake in the brand as an opportunity to gain media attention. Um, 
One of the, the coolest things he did, though, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's just a, an interesting, interesting character. But, sounds, like, uh, sounds like a Christ-a-tunity, as I say. I think, I think you're probably right on that. Um, but some of your listeners may be familiar with the Graybar Building in Midtown Manhattan, um, which is adjacent to the Grand Central Terminal. And it's because yeah. of Albert Saul sure. that the building bears our company name. Um, at the time it was built, it was the world's largest office building, and because Salt was friends with the developer, he had the opportunity to put Graybar's name on the building. And so that was a great publicity opportunity, very, um, a very prestigious building, and um, to be able to put our name on that building um, was a fantastic way to raise the visibility of Graybar. And to, to this day, the building is still known as the Graybar Building and is a New York City designated landmark. Um, so we can give SALT credit for that um, as well, and that still stands the test of time today. Um, but one of the neat things I think about um, our first president, Albert SALT, is that he was a really strong leader as well. So it's, it's fun to look at the things he did from a publicity standpoint, and, and he was brilliant when it came to that. But I was yeah. reading an, uh, an interview from 1928 that really talked about his leadership philosophies and his approach to, to managing people. And, and um, you know, he was not just a great publicist, but he was a fantastic leader who really had the vision and the values that set Grave on the path to becoming a successful and admired company. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. That's great. Um, and... I, I may lead the witness here a little bit, um, but I, I always like to ask, ask the, uh, the question as part of these uh, segments. So if you had one story to tell in a bar about gray bar history, what would it be? Um, but I think if I'm not mistaken, gray bar actually has a story that actually was featured on an episode of drunk history, um, which probably by its nature makes it very, uh, very, uh, uh, well qualified to be told in a bar. Um, but if you had a story, Carrie, that you would tell about the company in a bar, uh, what might it be? And would it possibly be the same one that I'm referring to from the episode in, in drunk history? I think it probably would, Jason. Um, the episode of Drunk History that it's also it's also it's, it's also appropriate to mention we're coming up on a on a milestone that uh, that um, involves a certain uh, world changing device. Uh, but anyway, there you go. Exactly. So um, so one of our favorite stories, and and it's probably one of the better known stories of anyone who knows Elisha Gray. Um, is yeah. the story about the, the battle for the telephone patent. Um, as you know, Alexander Graham Bell is commonly known. Um, Who? Who? <laughs> yeah, that other guy was known as the inventor of the telephone. But there's a lot of evidence um, that Graybar co-founder Elisha Gray should have received credit for that. So as the story goes, it was Valentine's Day of 1876, and Bell and Gray each submitted an application to the U.S. Patent Office for a device that we would recognize as a telephone, as something to transmit the human voice over a wire. And less than a month later, after reviewing their competing applications, the Patent Office awarded the patent to Bell, saying the, that his papers had arrived before Gray's. Um, now, Gray sued. He claimed that Bell stole the idea and took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, but unfortunately, he lost. And Bell obtained what, was, what may have been the most valuable patent in history, along with the recognition as the inventor of the telephone. But you know, there wouldn't be a drunk history episode if this story ended there. So Gray had a lot of supporters and, uh, who, disported, who disputed the court's decision. Um, many insisted that you know, his application was delivered to the patent office first, but remained near the bottom of the in-basket until the afternoon. And they claimed that Bell's application actually came in later, but the lawyer requested that it be entered immediately. So you know, there's that conspiracy theory. Um, in, you know, in the relatively recent years, there have been a couple of books written on this. Um, there's one called The Telephone Patent Conspiracy, which was published in wow. 2001. 
that um, says Gray may have filed his application with the patent office before Bell, but a clerk with a drinking problem was bribed by Wells Bell's backers to change the order of the filings and give Bell the victory. So there's that. Huh. Um, and then the more recent um, book that was written, The Telephone Gambit, which was published in 2008 by journalist Seth Shulman, goes even further, and it claims that Bell got a sneak peek at Gray's application and quickly copied Gray's idea before submitting his own papers. And according to Shulman, Bell's lawyers then had the order of the filings changed so that Bell's came first. So, um, and by the way, the telephone gamut is a very fun read. Um, it's um, really well written, and visually it shows the, the patents. And when you read that book, you can see that there's a pretty good case to be made. Yeah. Um, that Gray may truly have been the inventor of the telephone. Wow. Well, and, so how how is that story sort of played out as 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 Graybar myth? What how how is I mean, obviously missing out on to to your point one of the the biggest innovations in the history of human civilization could feel like a pretty devastating um, loss. <laughs> um, so how, how is that, um, how is the, 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 the legend of that story sort of told and what's the, what's the moral of the story uh, inside Graybar? Um, well, the story kind of is what it is, but, uh, you know, Be yeah. it, what's interesting is that Western Electric eventually acquired the rights, uh, the exclusive rights to manufacture the telephone. Yeah. So um, Western Electric ended up okay in the end um, because they, they yeah. manufactured a lot of telephones. I think there's a story there that, that, you know, just because things don't go your way doesn't mean you give up and you find the opportunity yeah. where it is. And, you know, you even look at, at an inventor like Gray. Um, he had far more patents to his name over the course of his life than Bell ever had. And so he kept going, and he kept innovating, and he kept looking for the next big thing. And yeah. um, I think that's how you deal with setbacks, right? So uh, yeah. there are a lot of lessons we can learn from that. Yeah, well, certainly my, my understanding of the story is that, yeah, that Gray had far more uh, technical uh, prowess than, than, than Bell. And Absolutely. I remember the first time I heard that story, just my first thought I remember explicitly was, wow, like what an amazing thing that you could have such a um, seemingly on the surface um, big miss, um, you know, 140 years ago or whatever. Um, but here you are 140 years later and you still can be a, you know, multi-billion dollar, hugely successful company. That's one of the most admired companies, you know, in, in your industry. Um, so uh, to your point, I think that that's, that's a pretty compelling, uh, uh, compelling uh, uh, message. Now you've, you've worked at Graybar for, for a while. Have you not? Yes. 27 years this year. Oh, wow. So you started there at the, as the same age as, as Albert Salt did. Correct. <laughs> Maybe a little well, older than that. But yeah, uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bar's already always, it's always kind of pushed the, uh, pushed the edge with the child labor laws, I know. Right. But um, so uh, I'm curious, as part of the, um, as part of the, the 150th, were there any stories that you um, had not heard before that, that, that were new, new to you and were particularly impactful? Absolutely. So um, one of the coolest things, one of the coolest discoveries of our 150th anniversary celebration was going back and reading some of Elisha Gray's writings. Um, we, you know, we had known about the existence of a series of books that he wrote near the end of his life. Um, it was a series called Nature's Miracles. There were three volumes. And, you know, to, to those of us today who like to read more modern um, literature, you know, it would have been a tough read. So I don't know that any of us actually had, set, had taken the time to read through those books. And as part of planning our 150th anniversary celebration, um, through the process we uncovered a, a little gem in one of these books. The, the very last chapter of his last book um, was titled The New Era. And 
this is a very short chapter. It was only about three pages long. But in this chapter called The New Era, Gray pointed to some themes that are very, very relevant nearly 120 years after he wrote it. And while the language is, um, it, the, the language feels like it's 120 years old, the points he made are absolutely relevant today. Um, for example, he talks in that chapter about the advancement of technology and how it makes our lives better. He, he talks about how technology connects people like never before and gives us access to more information than we could ever have before. Um, he even talks about the human tendency to resist change and want to go back to what's comfortable. Um, he talks about the importance of learning and seeking out new knowledge and the power of the individual. And then he finishes, near the end, he puts the phrase in there to look forward. And what a great way to finish, um, finish that book. And so we were really inspired by the title of the chapter, The New Era, and the message that was in it. And so the theme for our anniversary became Powering the New Era. Yeah. And yeah. it's the perfect way to fuel excitement for our future while anchoring on our heritage and what's made us successful for so long. Uh, I love that. It's that we, we always love that when you find those little gems, those little golden nuggets, as we call them, that, you know, you read it and it feels so relevant. And yet you then realize that it was, you know, written, you know, 100 years ago. Um, Absolutely. That, that's awesome. We have a, a little joke at History Factory. We talk about the idea of trying to set up like a March Madness bracket style tournament of mm -hmm. like insanely um, relevant and beautifully written 19th century sort of manifestos like the one you're describing um, for Mr. Gray, because there's so many of them and they're just, they're such time capsules because people just don't write and communicate that way. But, but, but oftentimes the themes and the concepts are so, are so timeless. Right. So we've right. always joked about the idea of having like some sort of like, you know, March Madness tournament to come down to like the final four, <laughs> um, but I think there, I think that would be a pretty, admittedly, there would be a pretty limited audience for that. <laughs> just, just, just those business history <laughs> yeah. You know, those yeah. of us who are into celebrating anniversaries would enjoy that, but maybe not too yeah. many others. But you know, that's that yeah. to me was it's, the it's, most it's, it's, it's a very small example. but powerful niche market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, one of the things that's really cool is, you know, that's that's a really powerful example. But we came across. So many other examples of um, really timeless wisdom that's been passed down from generation to generation in the company, yeah. um, and so it's always it just it gives me chills every time I read something that was written, you know, more than a hundred years ago that that just hits the mark today, and uh, yeah. so yeah. it's fun to find that. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's a great segue to, to the future. And so what, what are some, what are some of the key things that, um, that you all are up to now at Graybar, uh, to continue the journey, uh, to, to the 175 and beyond? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an, a, a fun ride for many years, and I think it's just going to become more exciting as the years go on. Um, for the past several years, Graybar has been on a, a journey toward digital transformation of our business, and we're putting a lot of the building blocks in place today to continue that progress. Um, you know, we continue in, to invest in digital tools and platforms that help us raise our own productivity and deliver more value to our customers, which is the most important thing. Um, you know, we're, we're rethinking how work gets done and adapting our organization to really use technology to our advantage. Um, we see great opportunities with data and um, advanced analytics to not just understand the past, what happened in the past in our business, but also to anticipate the future. and. We're exploring a lot of other technologies like artificial intelligence and blockchain and all of those, uh, all of those platforms that um, really show a lot of promise for the future. Um, you know, as we're doing that, we look ahead to the future, but we know technology's really not the point. Um, it's really about using technology to help our people achieve more. Um, and so. You know, as we look ahead to the future, of course, we'll continue to 
to advance in our use of technology. We don't even know what it'll be 25 years from now. But mm-hmm. we're really doing this with the mindset that um, the essence of transformation is focusing, focused really on creating that culture of innovation and, and um, a culture that brings out the best in our people and really unleashes that human potential that allows us to do the things we've never been able to do before. Um, and, you know, it's about inspiring innovation and equipping people with the tools they need to deliver that exceptional customer experience today and in the future. Um, and I think the key thing, too, is, you know, a lot of things are changing, and we must continue to change and adapt, but we believe it's really important not to compromise our values or what we stand for as an organization. And there's a reason why we've been successful for 150 years. And that same spirit of innovation and service and ownership is really what we want to build on for the future. So um, the future is looking bright. Um, We're excited about what's happening in our industry and um, really glad that we could use our 150th anniversary celebration to set the stage and power the new era for Graybar and for our industry. That's awesome. Well, what a great what a great way to uh, to end the conversation. So, congratulations again uh, to uh, to you and the team for for making it to to 150 and being uh, being back on that world's most admired list. And uh, best of luck. And we'll, we'll see you in Chicago in a couple of months, right, for uh, oh, the anniversary marketing summit. I'm looking forward to it. And thanks for the opportunity for um, for us to tell our story. Yeah, it was great. So, so much fun to hear more about the origin story of Graybar. So we'll talk soon, Carrie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Carrie for joining us to share Graybar's origin story. Carrie will also be one of the speakers at the Anniversary Marketing Summit next month in Chicago. If you're not familiar with the Anniversary Marketing Summit, it's the premier conference for company and brand anniversary milestones. If you work for a company or a brand that has an upcoming anniversary, you may want to check it out. In addition to Carrie from Graybar, we'll have presenters from the NFL, Sesame Street, Campbell Soup, KitchenAid, Selenies, and Deloitte, who was our last origin story. And you can check it out at anniversarymarketingsummit.com. It's going to be a great event in Chicago on April 21st, so check it out. And if you're interested, send us an email, and if you reference History Factory Plugged In, we'll email you a discount code. That's our show. Many thanks to Lisa Battelle and Carrie Johnson from Graybar for being on the pod. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Spring is around the corner. Daylight Savings is this weekend. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. In the words of the 1878 District Telephone Company of New Haven, Connecticut, that is all.